Family. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner, really testing the limits of that phrase, the more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pound. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. This is a different perspective with Kevin Randall. Kevin is a retired United States Army Lieutenant Colonel who has studied UFOs for more than 50 years. His military training has provided him with unique insight into military operations and UFO research. Kevin has investigated many of the most mysterious cases and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries and been interviewed on hundreds of radio and television programs about UFOs. Considered to be one of the leading experts on the Roswell UFO crash, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs including Roswell in the 21st Century and Encounter in the Desert, a re-examination of the Socorro UFO landing. Now here's the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I'm Kevin Randall. I'm also what is known as a telephone colonel, which we'll explain later. I know that uh, my guest is well aware of what that is. I usually have some kind of comments or rant that I get into at this part of the program, but frankly, I have nothing to complain about at the moment. So instead of doing any of that, I will introduce the guest, Colonel Richard Weaver, who is a retired U.S. Air Force colonel and former special agent of the Air Force Office of Special Investigation, as well as a retired president of an international tactical training company. In 1994, while assigned to the Pentagon, he inherited leadership of a congressionally directed audit by the General Accounting Office into what has become known as the Roswell Incident, which is why he is here today. With, uh, At that time, he authored a book uh, book about that, the most compelling explanation of what happened near Roswell in a rather benign and politically correct report. What he didn't report at the time was the chicanery, and we'll get into that, and attempted manipulation by special interest outsiders who were using the audit for their own, often less than noble purposes, which is something that I didn't know. I knew some of the behind the scenes connections that were going on. Uh, the book finally tells the rest of all of that story. In retirement, along with his wife of 53 years, Linda, he has been involved in animal rescue and international travel. <laughs> in my international travel, it seems like every time I went someplace, people were shooting at me, uh, which kind of turned me off to international travel. They have two children, five grandchildren, and seven great-grandchildren and live somewhere in the southeastern United States. His book is called Backstory, Roswell, Exclusive Untold Disclosures about the 1994 Air Force Roswell Report. Colonel Weaver, welcome to A Different Perspective. Kevin, thank you very much. I'm glad I was able to join you today. I think what's going to be a fun and illustrative um, 
conversation that we'll have here. I'm going to explain telephone colonel to them. He, uh, colonel Weaver is a full colonel, a, what we call a bird colonel, an 06. I, on the other hand, am a lieutenant colonel, which is an 05. And we're called telephone colonels because we are authorized to answer the telephone as Colonel so-and-so. Uh, although in the last few years, I've noticed that an awful lot of lieutenant colonels do, in fact, answer the phone lieutenant colonel so-and-so. Which reminds me of an interesting story. Back when I was in the Air Force as an intelligence officer, actually the director of intelligence at the uh, at, at in O'Hare, we had to destroy classified materials periodically. I mean, it, they were out of date. There were things that we did not need. They had to be destroyed because they were classified. And I would call over to the Great Lakes Naval Air Station, and I would introduce myself as Captain Randall, and they would get very excited because a captain in the Navy is equivalent to a bird colonel in the Air Force until they found out I was an Air Force captain, which is the equivalent of a lieutenant in the Navy. So they were less than impressed. But it's just how things worked out in the telephone and the variations between the branches. As I mentioned, Colonel Weaver, and we can colonel each other to death here just for fun. Yeah, um, why, yeah. You, yeah, why don't you call me Rich? And then I'll well, obviously, I, I'm just being kind of I remember the scene from yeah. the one of the movies on the Alamo where they had Colonel De Colonel Travis and Colonel Bowie and Colonel Crockett, and they said, well, we could just colonel each other to death here. Um, what intrigued me about your book was some of the backstory that went, went on there. Can you just briefly kind of fill me in in, in some of the uh, maneuvering that went on behind the scenes that, it, that, that uh, became, became the, the Roswell investigation as you did it? Yeah, sure. What happened originally is, of course, like everything in the military, we inherit this as a duty, as a task. Uh, whether we wanted to or not, we happened to be in the office that was re responsible for that. And the uh, general accounting office uh, decided they were going to conduct an audit of, I don't know, they changed the name of it three different times. So something having to do with Roswell, okay, is it, how, is it, how it ended up. And... Uh, so we became the uh, sticky office in the Pentagon for the Air Force anyway, because other services were also involved. And uh, as we went through our tasks, uh, trying to put together uh, to answer the, the, the purpose of the audit, we found out that this just wasn't quite as uh, straightforward and uh, up and coming as it seemed. And there was a lot of politics and a lot of manipulation going on behind the scenes in an attempt to uh, somehow come to a foregone conclusion by uh, other other people and that there there had been some manipulation both of uh, the GAO and uh, other government agencies by um, an unorganized, I think, a group of outsiders who had their own agenda and were trying to seek their own... Uh, uh, well, let's Opinions let's, let's clarify a little through. bit. Let's clarify a little bit because uh, the GAO just didn't didn't uh, decide to investigate Roswell. There was pressure put on by a New Mexico congressman named uh, Schiff. That's right. And and he he was the one that kind of initiated the idea that the GAO should be investigated. And, you, and I think you're suggesting here that there were people in his office and people that he knew that had manipulated him into uh, making the request. Yeah, that's right. Schiff was a, a congressman from the Albuquerque area in New Mexico, 
And uh, amongst the people on his staff, including the, uh, one of his highly placed staffers, was also the wife of one of the uh, more noted at the time uh, UFO researchers, and she ended up kind of in charge of uh, some of this efforts. Now, this was all unknown to us originally at the time, of course, but as we went through, uh, we started learning about uh, every time we turned around, these other people were other people, meaning uh, Schiff and his staffers and people that were trying to influence Schiff, uh, had their fingers in the in the Roswell pie, and uh, we couldn't report that uh, in our government report because that was not our task. Our, our job was to make this as uh, truthful and as politically uh, correct as possibly could be, so we didn't step on any toes, which is what we had attempted to do. Now, when you talk about this, these other people, you're referring specifically to Carl Flock, I believe, who was a member of the Fund for UFO Research at the time and had been investigating the Roswell case on his own uh, for some time when all of this began. Yeah, he was certainly one of the, the major shakers and movers in this whole effort. In fact, uh, he gloated in a number of writings that uh, I outline in my book uh, how he was... Uh, working behind the scenes to influence this, which is, by the way, not illegal or even immoral, uh, by certainly by D.C. standards, where apparently nothing is. But um, he was he was well, well in, in, involved in this, which is kind of interesting, because at the same time, he was conducting his own research and overlapped uh, many of the areas that we ultimately looked into. Well, you know, Carl Flock had always wanted to be a writer, I think, or had a, a desire to be a writer. And he first surfaced in the world of the UFO during the cattle mutilations in the 1970s, early 1980s. Um, and he was working with a fellow in Colorado Springs, whose name escapes me and is irrelevant to this. But he met two writers who were doing a book on cattle mutilations called Mute Evidence, uh, a fellow named Kagan and a fellow named Summers. They met in Colorado Springs, and Flock introduced himself as a Kurt Peters. And he was writing a book about, or trying to gather information about uh, cattle mutilations as well. But um, Summers and Kagan already had a contract with Bantam Books, so it kind of put him on the outside. But he uh, sort of in his, tried to insert himself into their investigation at the same time, and I don't think it went very well. And that's kind of the, some of the background on Flock. But the other thing I wanted to mention is Carl Flock had told us, and by us I mean Don Schmidt and me, and the members of the Center for UFO Studies, that the Roswell crash was the result of an N9M flying wing. That was a precursor to the XB-35, which is the big flying wing that you sometimes see in, well, you would have seen in the War of the World, the early War of the Worlds uh, movie back in 1953. Right. And then he moved on to other uh, other arenas in that. So Flock is, I guess you would say, uh, he, he was well-versed in ufology when he began to bug uh, Congressman Schiff about doing something on the Roswell case. Is, am I getting that in the right order there? I, I think so, because when this originally started... Uh... We had no idea who Carl Flock even was, and had never even actually heard of him at all, uh, because 
in our particular office, UFOs was not something that we looked into, uh, or the Air Force even looked into. And so we were um, blissfully unaware of his existence for the early part of our efforts. And uh, But every time we turned around, his name popped up. Now, he, he was, as you know, he also had a, a rather uh, decent background in his own right in government. And, uh, uh, you know, so he had some good credentials as far as on paper of, uh, you know, being kind of a stand-up guy. But every time we turned around, he had his his figures in the, in the pie trying to manipulate something. And uh, as, as we went through this whole thing and learned more about him, including studying his uh, uh, writings that he had available, uh, we never really could figure out what his agenda really and truly was. And I mentioned that in my book under uh, a chapter called what the flock is going on. Um, but um I he was think, always kind of an enigma in the whole thing. I think his agenda was to become a writer. And I know that he had uh, at one time edited a, been an editor. I, I don't remember, was it a magazine or a small publishing house? He wanted to write science fiction as one of the things he wanted to do. I mean, I knew Carl Flock. I'd met him many, many times. In fact, he and I did an article on Barney Barnett, which was the Plains of San Augustine witness to part of the crash. Uh, back in the in the International UFO Reporter, where we determined that uh, if Barnett was referring to a UFO crash, it had nothing to do with Roswell. It was something else. And we're not sure that Barnett didn't make up the whole thing based on the Aztec crash, but that's a whole other story. So Flock, I think Flock's motivation was to become a writer. And this was one of the paths he took to achieve that goal was to insert himself into this investigation and become uh, an important part of the Roswell story. Well, I, yeah, we were certainly unaware of that at the time. And actually, I was not aware that I knew he, he had written a number of, of books subsequent to that. But uh, I had no idea at that specific time that uh, he had the desire to be a writer. I did know from uh, a letter that he wrote to uh, uh, Cabot that uh, he was looking forward to making money by writing books, but he, because well, he made that statement uh, in the letter to Cabot. Well, but, let me uh, let me let me point out to those who don't know Cabot. Sherrod is Sheridan Cabot. He was the right. counterintelligence guy in Roswell in 1947. Later became a member of the Air Force Office of Special Investigation and ended his 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 career as another telephone colonel, Colonel Lieutenant Colonel Cabot. Uh, we're going to have to take a quick break here, and. Uh, when we get come back, we'll we'll explore this a little bit more and then move on to other arenas in which this all took place. I do want to thank those of you who have purchased the best of Project Blue Book. It's been up and down the Amazon bestseller list. If you enjoyed it, please rate it and write a review. It helps to spread the word. I try to be very, very neutral in my word, but sometimes my um, bias takes over, as I think it does with everybody. And be sure to take a look at Encounter in the Desert about Socorro and Roswell in the 21st century. And of course... Colonel Weaver's book, which we'll mention when we come back right after this. So please stick around.
the we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pound. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. I am here with Colonel Richard Weaver, whose claim to fame for us, anyway, was he was the senior leader on the Air Force investigation into the Roswell case. And as I promised before, his book is called Backstory, Roswell, the exclusive untold disclosures about the 1994 Air Force Roswell report. When we went away, we were kind of talking about Carl Flock and his manipulation of the situation. Um, and his, did he, I guess what I'm, I'm casting about for, did he exert any direct influence on your investigation or I mean, did he contact you personally or did you just learn about him through other areas? No, I never had any contact with him uh, at any time during that or subsequent to that, uh, or nor did any other uh, members that I'm aware of of my staff that uh, were involved in putting together the, the original 1994 report. So, Basically, what we learned about him, we learned through other people uh, talking with us uh, because he was simultaneously writing a, a book himself uh, about Roswell. And, uh, but we never had any interaction with him uh, at all. I always felt that he chose the path he did on the Roswell case, and this is from my discussions with him, is that uh, he wanted to do a book about Roswell, but when he came to the table, there was always already the Roswell incident by uh, Charles Berlitz and William Moore. Don Schmidt and I had sold a book to Avon, which they cleverly called the, the UFO crash at Roswell. That was not the title we had. <laughs> um, there was Friedman doing his book with Don Berliner called Crash at Corona, and when he got to the table... Those places were pretty much full. The only thing he could do was come at it from the negative point of view. And I think that switched his opinion about the Roswell case, that it was based not nearly, merely on the evidence that he saw, but on what was available for him to, to do, what, where he could go and publish a book that wasn't going to be something that would be lost in the uh, clutter of all the other Roswell books. 
Well, that, you know, that's certainly very possible. I, I, and I'm familiar with all the other books that you just mentioned, which, of course, including yours and Don Schmidt's. And, and you had two of them. Up. I think one came out in 1994, your uh, second one. And we actually used all those materials because none of we were not pro-UFO guys or anti-UFO guys. We weren't UFO guys. Uh, so most of us, the only thing that we knew about Roswell, quite frankly, is what we had seen on television or uh, garnered through uh, a haphazard reading of one of those other books. So when this when this came up, we went to those books and a lot of the other writings that came out in, in UFO journals to find out exactly what some of the issues are, because we needed more information than the GAO had provided to us in order to go out and try and do a diligent search for the, the records that they were they claimed to be looking for. So, um, but, and of course we had no contact with, uh, uh, with any of those other writers personally either, including yourself at that time. And well, uh, when you say that McAndrew called me a number of times, I talked to McAndrew a number of times and I don't know if he talked to any of the other writers, but he talked to me a number of times. I, 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 if he did, uh, and I, if, if you say he did, I, I believe you 100%. But if he did, it probably had to do with the subsequent book that, that he authored, which came out after the, the Roswell report, uh, the original tome that uh, I was responsible for writing. McAndrew stayed on at the Pentagon in the historian's office and then subsequently wrote uh, uh, another book. Uh, and I think that's probably when he had contact with you. And by that time, I had gone on to other pastures and was not, I, I was aware that he was writing the book and I had talked to him about it, but I wasn't aware of the, the ins and outs of what he was actually uh, uh, aiming toward or who he might have talked to. Well, he actually told wanted me to admit that I was in it for the money, and that was his big, big push. You, you can tell me that you're in it for the money. That's all that matters to me. And I'm thinking, no, I'm not in it for the money. I had a very nice career going writing science fiction and action adventure books, and this kind of derailed part of that because we got so involved in the investigation. Don Schmidt and I made many, many trips to to Roswell and other places to talk to witnesses. And uh, that seemed to be his theme was you're just in it for the money. Now, I know before we had the break, you had mentioned just briefly that Sheridan Cavett had a letter from Carl Flock, which said basically he was in it for the money. Did that yeah, influence your, that effect? Did, did, did that influence your opinion of all the people who were involved in the Roswell investigations, which would include Don Schmidt and me and Don Berliner and Stan Friedman and some of the others who were doing the investigations? Did that kind of set a blanket tone for all of us? No, not really. Uh, that's the only direct, and I mentioned that in my book, the only direct uh, claim that somebody had about the money. And by the way, there's nothing wrong in making money writing, writing a book. Uh, although some people took it to a new high, and you probably can imagine who I'm talking about there. That's not you and Don Schmidt. Um, <laughs> but, um, well, at least in our book, we tried to keep it. We tried to keep to the evidence. We didn't make stuff up. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, but what, what we were looking at there is uh, there was other claims where other people had written uh, letters to other people, and these, these all existed where 
they were bragging, if you will, about how they were involved with getting this whole thing started with, with Congressman Schiff and ultimately the GAO and, and as, as kind of a collective, collective group. Now, that, that didn't strike me as being you know, a highly organized conspiracy. It just is a bunch of guys that had a common interest in, uh, in trying to get the government to do some of the work uh, for them. And that those are claims that other people made that we didn't make, but nevertheless we went on uh, with our own work because we had more than enough to do just searching for the the, the records that uh, they wanted to look for. What when um, we were doing our investigation, it's Don Schmidt and I. Uh, we looked into the backgrounds of many of the people to make sure that what they were telling us were, were legitimate. Uh, we got fooled a couple of times. Frank Kaufman springs to mind immediately. All right. But we, we also had uh, a re, um, interview done by Bob Pratt, who worked for the National Enquirer. And I always hesitate to say that because Pratt was very conscientious in doing his UFO articles for the Enquirer. He wanted to make sure the information was accurate. And he was a, um, I think he edited the MUFON Journal for a while and, and has done a couple, did a couple of books on, on uh, UFOs and became an important player in the MJ-12 nonsense that blew up in the, in the 1980s. But, um, you know, I, I, I'm just wondering about um, how all of this, how, how did you decide who you were going to talk to? And, and, and by that, I mean, what I was thinking there was um, Pratt was the one who interviewed Jesse Marcel first. He Correct. did the interview that I think we all had the eight pages from that some of the problems arose. And I know that you looked into some of Marcel's background. What all did you find when looking at Marcel's background? Well, the first question you ask is, who did we decide to talk to? And the answer was, we we had no real charter to, to actually talk to anybody because in the way it was tasked, it didn't, we weren't supposed to go forth and uh, basically redo everything that everybody had ever written about Roswell. Our job was to go through and find out what the Air Force may ha have had uh, or did have on Roswell pertaining to, to records. Uh, and we were coming up really, really short, like zero. And uh, But we, we wanted to be as thorough as possible, so we said, well, let's let's look at this as, a, as we would a criminal investigation, being an OS, OSI agent, and, and go back and look at the people who were involved in this thing who are still in the Air Force, because we just couldn't willy-nilly take off and start interviewing uh, people all over, the, all over the country, because we had no charter to do that. So we looked at the people that were still alive, and they were dwindling... Uh, almost daily by uh, that that may have had some direct personal knowledge of what may have happened at Roswell. And of course, person number one involved in that was Jesse Marcel. And we were aware of what he claimed through the, the, the uh, interview that Pratt did with him and a number of other uh, folks had had talked with him. Did and you so, did you have a did you have a copy of the Pratt interview? Yes, we did. So you know that it was just basically one big long paragraph. Yes, it was 
a little bit hard to determine. And Carl, Carl, when he printed in his book, cleaned it up. And there's one point where the insertion of a comment changes the comma changes the statement. And it was um, about Marcel claimed, I think, on his third flight in the Pacific War, he had had to bail out. Uh, the plane was shot down and he had to bail out. And Pratt asked him if all survived. And he said, all but one crashed into a mountain. And if you insert a comma in there, it becomes all survived, but one guy who crashed into a mountain. And if you leave the comma out, it sounds like everybody but one crashed into the mountain. And I know when Carl wrote his book, he inserted the comma. And, and so I think that part of the problem was the interpretation of the Pratt interview. I called Pratt about that and asked him if he still had the tape. And he said no, because they, they, they reuse the tapes frequently. So we couldn't get a read on exactly how these things developed. But I think part of the problem arose from the way Pratt transcribed the, uh, transcribed the interview. Yeah, and, that, and that's certainly possible. And I've, I'm familiar with that uh, controversy, although I wasn't at the, at the time in 1994 when we, when we had a copy of the interview. We just had what was available, uh, which came out of the National Enquirer. But um, I, I know that's been a matter of some contention since then. What got our attention with uh, Jesse Marcel was, was not just that claim he had a whole bunch of claims that did not ring true i mean we pulled it and then went through every single piece of paper in his entire military records as we did with a number of other people and i list those folks in the in the book and they were all folks that had been in the air force at roswell or related to roswell in uh, 1947 so we had because we had direct access to those those records and Marcel, who had a, a, a good career on his, in his own right, he, uh, he was a, uh, a good soldier, so to speak, who did his duty like many of the other people during World War II. But by the time he or other people who were writing about him at the time got through, he did a whole lot more than his records could ever account for including being a pilot and shooting down five airplanes and all sorts of, all sorts of claims that could not be uh, established. And I go over those in, in detail in my book, and I know you've gone over them um, yourself uh, by reviewing his records, as has uh, Phil Class and other folks. So, um, um, well, let's take, let's take a break here. Let's Let's take a break here and come back to, to Marcel and some of his claims, because I think it's all in the matter of how you interpret what he said and how it come out how it came out in that interview. And I think it's important to understand the interpretations and the way these things went, because it's unfortunately it's not as black and white as it could be. It's there's there's some areas of gray in there, although there are some embellishments in Marcel's Marcel, Marcel's discussion of what he'd seen and done that that deserve, I think, to be underscored here. So we'll do that when we come back. I am here with Colonel Richard Weaver, who we've blamed for the uh, Roswell investigation. And I know you've been 
um, attack for some of your opinions based on what you've said. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure that most of that is unfair. The book is Backstory Roswell Exclusive Untold Disclosures about the 1994 Air Force Roswell Report. Uh, take a look at mine, Roswell in the 21st Century, and I think you'll find some areas of agreement between what uh, Rich and I have written about that. So when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about Marcel. You are listening to A Different Perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Bet broadcast network we will be back right after this so please stick around as i say i'm here with Rich Weaver, but to make it clear, we are not in the same room. We are not in the same state. We are practicing social distancing. I say that each time so people know that we're not violating anybody's directives on how we can remain safe. When we went away, we were kind of talking about Jesse Marcel, and there are some problems with Jesse Marcel. I think some of it is the result of misinterpretations of the Pratt interview. I think some of it is what Jesse Marcel himself said. But one thing, one thing that caught me in your book, you said you couldn't find the citation for Marcel's Bronze Star. Is that correct? Yeah, we could not. Um, we, we found the, uh, the, 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 well, we found the write-up for it, which is the same as, uh, I think, 14 other people. Don't, don't hold me to that number, but where they just blanket gave these out for, uh, to, to a bunch of people, which is not unusual during that period of time. But uh, we could not find the, the actual write-up for it. We found the citation where what it claimed, but it was re- really pretty generic. Did, did you find... Did you find flight during hostilities and this type of thing. Did, did you find the general order, is what, is what you're telling me, the general order number 672? Yeah, we never, never found that. We went uh, a number of places looking for it with the Air Force Historical... Uh, research agency and, and folks. This is this is my this is my big gotcha for you because I have a copy of it. I found yeah, you it. mentioned earlier that good good catch. The um, it it was in the unit history. I had ordered a copy of the unit history and I went through the unit history. I actually found a picture of Marcel briefing the flight crews. And so I have general order number 672, dated 3 May 1945. I also found another copy. It was dated 9 May 1945. And as you say, it's just generic. It says, by direction of the president, under the provisions of executive order number 9419, for February 1944, and it gives some other stuff like that, a Bronze Star Medal is awarded to, by the commanding general, the Far East Air Forces, uh, to the following officer... And enlisted men, but it only got one name. It says uh, to Captain Jesse A. Marcel, Air Corps, United States Army for meritorious achievement. I think you deduced it was for meritorious achievement in connection right. with the military operations um, against the enemy in the Southeast Pacific from 15 January 1944 to 1 November 1944. So I managed I managed to find that, but I went through the unit history to uh, to get that. I was looking for the air medals. 
and uh, anything that would suggest he had shot down five enemy planes. And I'm thinking that he may have sent to, said to Pratt that he had five air medals, and he mentioned shooting down one enemy plane. And I'm thinking Pratt might have thought he got an air medal for each time he shot down an air, enemy plane. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. There was absolutely no, no record of anything. It'd be a pretty big deal for an intelligence officer who's not a, not rated to shoot down five enemy airplanes. Not the least of which is I go through in the book and make him an ace, which would, he would have been a standalone guy. And I list the other guys in the that uh, theater of of service during World War II that shot down, uh, uh, and most of them were were tail gunners or uh, waist gunners or whatever, which you'd expect. But uh, in addition to fighter pilots, which, of course, he's got the most of them, uh, he claimed to be flying on a B-24, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. Uh, I, think, I, think it was, yeah, I think it was B-24s. And the, the other point of contention is I don't think he ever really said he was a pilot. I think he said he flew as a pilot, which is a different thing. I think it's a matter of semantics that we're dealing with here. And it may be an unimportant matter of semantics, but I don't think that he would, uh, when he said he flew as a pilot, I could say legitimately, I flew as a door gunner in Vietnam. You'll find nothing in my records to suggest I was trained as a door gunner or anything else. I was, I was a helicopter pilot and an aircraft commander. And at one point we had to fill in a number of slots and I took one of the slots as a door gunner a couple of times. So I flew as a door gunner, but you'll find nothing in my record to support that. And I think, well, you should, you know that as well as I do, Rich, that, that sometimes you fill into positions and you don't, it doesn't really show up in your records or anything like that. Um, and, and he talked about being shot down one time and there's nothing in his records to support that. And I'm thinking, I blew up a helicopter on a landmine and you'll find nothing in my records to support that. But if you go to the 187th Assault Helicopter Company website and look at the unit history, you'll find out on, I think it's May 16th. Uh, in 1969, I blew up a helicopter on a landmine. So, you know, some of that criticism, I, I think, was a little bit unfair uh, toward Marcel. And, and I'm not accusing you of, of, of it. A lot of people have done the same thing. Yeah, well, yeah, what I'm saying is in, in his records, there was, even if it was nothing in his flight records, there was nothing to show that he was ever trained in any way in anything having to do with, with flight. And the only weapon that he was familiar with that was, he was even qualified to, to carry was a 45 pistol, uh, which, which, which is a, what you would expect for an intelligence officer there. They don't. You know, oh, absolutely. Ab absolutely. But in the unit history, again, looking through that, I know he did, he did receive two air medals and, and you acknowledge that in the book as well. I, yes. I could only find two. And I always yeah. thought it's, what's the difference between two and five? I mean, what's the big deal? Uh, the, uh, there was a general officer who had 125 air medals. It, in the Vietnam War, you got an air medal for every 25 hours of combat assault flight time. So a lot of us racked up a large number of air medals. So it wasn't a big deal. Um, yeah, well, it was for you because you got them the, the old-fashioned way by actually going in aerial flight in, in combat. And you and I both know guys that just rode along as frequent flyers so they could say they got an X number of hours on there so they could get an air medal, even though they had nothing to do with uh, their mission or anything else. They just wanted an air medal. And, and but but wouldn't you think, the system, but, but wouldn't you think as an air intelligence officer, by riding along on some of those missions, it would have helped him 
in his intelligence work? I mean, it, you can see it being a necessary thing to do. I, I certainly wouldn't preclude it. And obviously he must have because he did get two air medals. So, he, you know, you don't get those without being in an airplane. And uh, so he, he obviously flew it at some point. Now, what he was doing is is unknown. It's uh, whether he was just going back and forth or whether he was actually gainfully working on an intelligence officer task, which is highly possible. Uh, I, I give him credit for, for that as a possibility. But I'm saying that that's just not the only thing in his record that was uh, a, a little bit suspect. His education well, was his well, all, let's, all sorts we'll, of things. We'll get into that in just a minute. Let me say one other thing. In the unit history, it said he had 485 hours of flight time. That's in the unit history, documented in the unit history, 485 hours of flight time. And you know as well as I do, these bomber missions could last for I was going to say literally days, uh, 14, 15 hours. So it wouldn't take long before he could run up a whole bunch of stuff. So I think that that was the reason he was participating in the missions and uh, probably in official capacity. But that's really not some of the major issues. He said that he had 3,000 hours, I think, of um, pilot time. I found nothing to suggest he had an FAA certificate. I found nothing to suggest he had any kind of rating in the military. And I, as a no. military pilot, in uh, I don't even have three thousand hours of pilot time, so I found that that could be suspect. Um, I looked into his education, and I, I think as as we all did, he had an, a year and a half at um, Louisiana Louisiana State University LSU. Right. But he but he claimed. Um, and and I'm not sure he was how he got that it, because there seems to be a little bit of of uh, a problem with that although it's it's mentioned in his military record but he mentioned in the Pratt interview he'd gotten some kind of a degree from I think George Washington University and they seem to have no record I wondered if there was a program and and you know as well as I do that oftentimes soldiers would take advantage of courses at the local universities while they're serving in duty, sort of an outreach program like that. I asked George Washington about that, and they had no record that he had attended attended anything like that, so it kind of shot that in the foot. So we had some problems with getting into his background. I mean, you found other, other instances as well? Well, basically, there was nothing that... We, we didn't dwell on his education. We were looking at the military thing. Now, other people, including Phil Class and Robert Todd, got his records, and they pointed out the edu- education thing. By the way, in our original report, uh, the, the Roswell report, which was actually never written to be a book. It was written to be a report for the Secretary of the Air Force and not for public dissemination. But um, we never mentioned anything about uh, about Marcel or any of those people by name, because we didn't want to, uh, if we did, we'd have to point out the discrepancies in there. And we didn't want it to look like we were trying to shoot the messenger to, to uh, you know, go after the, the, the claimants rather than go after the information. So we didn't mention anything about any of those folks, including we looked for Frank Kaufman's records and we looked at Cavett's records and we looked at Blanchard's records. And we looked at all those people, um, that that we could that had some kind of firsthand uh, claim to whatever it was they found or thought they found at, at Roswell or handled the, the information. Newton, um, 
So uh, we didn't mention any of those folks in the original book. And that, I mentioned them now in, in my other book because it's not a government publication. The, the, the original book, uh, again, was written very succinct and stilted uh, way because that's the way you write in the Air Force, especially when you write to the secretary. And to get a senior officer to read anything more than two pages long is is difficult because they're, that's kind of the standard. And so we give them a, like a 30-page thing. That's asking them to read War and Peace, and that's really, really unusual. So we had to cut it back as uh, succinct as possible and still contain all the, the appropriate information and, and putting nitpicky stuff about any of the people involved in there just was not uh, something that you do in an official report. But the fact that we found, and I say we, because Don Schmidt and I found discrepancies as well with Marcel's record, tends to um, harm his reputation as a source to what he had seen in Roswell in 1947. Well, it, it's it certainly did to us because what we found. Uh, and I, I think, if, to be fair to to, uh, to Marcel, other than making the statement, uh, what he found was quote not of this world or not of this earth, uh, is a long way from saying what we found was a flying saucer full of aliens. Because I know of no case that he specifically said that, uh, but it, it became implied or inflated over time that that's what he was talking about. But I don't think he made those claims firsthand. He certainly never made them officially to anybody because there's no record of him talking he, uh, to anybody about it in the Air Force records. He, um, I think, was uh, talking about metallic debris. And metallic debris is basically metallic debris. You need something more to move it into the realm of the extraterrestrial. According to one of Marcel's relatives, and I don't buy this story at all, but he told uh, the uh, relative that he had seen the bodies, seen bodies of alien creatures. I don't believe that. I think if he'd seen alien body, cre alien bodies, he would have, the only person he would have told was his son. And Jesse Marcel Jr. was quite clear that his father never mentioned alien bodies. So I think Marcel stuck pretty much to the idea he was on the debris field. He saw this metallic debris this is what he observed of its properties, but he didn't take it beyond that. And I think that we, we, need, to, we need to make that pretty clear. Um, we're going to have to take another break. Um, there's so much to get into here. Uh, there's Project Mogul. There's MJ-12. There's Frank Kaufman, whom you've mentioned. There's um, Irving Newton, who was the weather officer. The, the picture's taken in General Ramey's office of the debris. The Ramey memo we need to talk about um, Sure. Because these are all interesting parts of the phenomenon, and it all relates to what, what we come back with our opinions of the Roswell case. So when we come back, we'll try to explore some of that in a little bit more coherent way, which is my fault, nobody else's. You're listening to A Different Perspective on the X-Zone Broadcast Network. We'll be back right after this, so please stick around.
I am here with Colonel Richard Weaver. We're talking about the Air Force investigation into the Roswell case, which was kind of a misnomer, I guess, that they really weren't investigating the Roswell case, but investigating the paperwork surrounding it and that sort of thing, and some of the things they found. Uh, there's so much to get into, and I'm not sure where we want to go here. Um, with Jesse Marcel, I think it's important to, to mention a, a couple of things here. Um, one is, I, I'm sure you didn't see Linda Corley's book on Marcel, uh, For the Sake of My Country, which was written long after you did your report. And the reason I bring this up, there's something in that book that bothers me immensely. And it's, and it's this, this deal. Marcel would, would be telling a story about how he had performed an appendectomy over the, uh, over the radio, this surgeon guiding him as he performed the appendectomy on a soldier who was very, very ill, gravely ill. And as he started to tell that story to Linda Corley, his wife, Lou Marcel, broke in and said, oh, not that again which suggests that he told the story frequently, but she may not have been <laughs> that that enamored with it. <laughs> um, I don't know if you'd seen yeah. that or not, but... we, Of course, we did not see it at the, at the time. I'm, I'm familiar with the book because I've read the book subsequently to that, but um, yeah, and that, that did kind of jump out at you in there as being like, hmm... That's a little bit weird, but uh, I am familiar with it. Well, uh, yeah, I, well there, there's something else that, that I, I'm going to jump to, and I, I didn't mean to jump to it at this point, but it, it just sprung up. You had done in your book, at the end of the book, the last part, you did a thing on stolen valor. And people who have good careers in the military, people who had no careers in the military, talking about these heroic events they were participants in, um, and you mentioned three, I think, three examples. I would mention the the publisher of the Arizona Republic, or, or one of the two major newspapers in, in Phoenix, Arizona, used to attend formal functions in an Air Force dress uniform and claimed to have been involved in some very hairy things right up until the time he was outed as never having served in the military. You wonder why someone who was a distinguished publisher would do that. And more importantly, there was a judge in Illinois a number of years ago who claimed to have the Medal of Honor. He had earned it in 1959 in the Navy. Well, the Navy at that time, and I don't know if they still do, would award the Medal of Honor to heroic acts that took place in peacetime, saving lives in a very heroic fashion. And that's what he claimed. He was outed when he tried to get Medal of Honor license plates for his car and they discovered there was no record of it this guy was a judge for crying out loud doing that <laughs> and and so we have a lot of people in the military who embellish their careers somewhat and i think i think jesse got caught up in some of that because he did a i guess you'd say a, a workman's job as an intelligence officer in the southeastern pacific during the second world war but he didn't do anything really heroic other than his job in a bad environment yeah, and, and I, I, I do give him credit, certainly in the book, is that uh, if he would have left out all that stuff, he would have had a fully successful Air Force art slash Army Air Corps uh, career in his own right. He, he wasn't a rock star, but he was he was a good, solid uh, officer. And uh, nobody can take that away from him. But when he started embellishing it, that, that goes to, at least in my case, uh, to his credibility. 
Yeah, it harms his credibility. Doesn't mean that what he said about the debris and that sort of thing is untrue or embellished. It just it just harms harms it. You need additional information. You need different additional evidence to accept that as being being legitimate. Um, I wanted to I wanted to mention you mentioned Frank Kaufman, and Frank Kaufman was a guy. And this really impacts the whole Roswell story in a great deal. I learned of Frank Kaufman from Walter Hott, Walter Hott being the press public affairs officer at Roswell in 1947. Um, and Frank Kaufman told, the told, told a number of stories, and he presented his separation papers to Don Schmidt and me. I have a copy of them. Um, said he was a master sergeant, he was trained in intelligence, and he was involved in the retrieval operation in New Mexico. Um, and you say you looked into his background and couldn't find records? Right. In, in, the, uh, in St. Louis, uh, he had not record one that we were able to locate. And uh, that's not unusual given uh, in that the, his records would have been stored in an area that was hit by the catastrophic fire that went through there some years ago. And we only found one. We did find one Frank Kaufman, as I mentioned in the book. It was one in. Uh, it was a it was a dental record or a portion of a dental record for another man who was not the person we're talking about. And that was it. I mean, that, because that area had been heavily uh, destroyed by by that fire. Well, I, yeah, I, it's going to sound like I'm criticizing the work you guys did, but it's it's that you had a limited tasking. And we had access to an awful lot of other people who wanted to help um, in the investigation. We we found Kaufman's original separation papers. ISIS, in, in St. Louis? Oh, well, oh no, no. I suspect. Him, I, I, would, sus I would suspect I, Frank. I, would, I, I, I would suspect that Mark Rodiker, Mark Chesney, and Don Schmidt found him after Frank had died. Uh, his wife, very nice woman, Juanita, had asked them to go through his personal papers. To make sure he ha did not have some contractual agreement that he had not fulfilled, uh, that that needed to be taken care of in relation to appearances on TV and that sort of thing, and I think that's where they found the original separation paper, and we learned that he was a staff sergeant, and that he had been trained in administration, and the original document he gave us was a complete and total fabrication. Right, and, 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 and dissimilar to the guy I used in the book who claimed. He had the Medal of Honor, and then his family, you know, finds this citation, and the guy never had the Medal of Honor, and and, and he never gained anything from it. But he had this thing all written up, claiming to be this rock star hero in his uh, uh, safe deposit box, and his family immediately believed it. Now, I, we assume that he's the one that that penned the the thing in the first place, for whatever reason, we never knew, but. Uh, I think Kaufman did a little bit of that in, in his own right because he was Kaufman, basically a clerk. Yeah, Kaufman did a lot of that, and and and, and but here's the here's the here's how it relates to Roswell. Is uh, we got it from Frank, we got it from Walter Hot, and I remember standing on Main Street in Roswell, New Mexico, across from the uh, Greyhound bus station, and asking Walter, "Can we believe what Frank Kaufman tells us?" And his response to me and Don Schmidt was, everything he tells you is golden. What does that now tell us about Walter Hott? Because we now well, know that Coffin was making the stuff up. Uh, and that harms Walter Hott's reputation as well. 
And you wonder about the manipulation that was going on there that, that impacts the entire Roswell case. And for those of you who'd like much, much more detail on this, I'll use this to plug my book, which was uh, Roswell in the 21st Century. I detail that in, in the book about uh, Walter Hott and Frank Kaufman and how we got to Kaufman and why we believed Kaufman in the very beginning. I also believed that the people who were military uh, t telling me the truth because I had not read Stolen Valor at that point and discovered we got all these people making up crap about what they'd done in the military when they hadn't been there, they hadn't done anything, and some of them hadn't been in the military. Yeah, so absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it's a very frightening thing in that respect. Uh, so you found nothing with Kaufman, but you didn't say anything in your report because it was really irrelevant to what you were doing. Yeah, I mean, we couldn't find any information about him one way or another. And uh, we, we did, of course, he showed up in your book at the time, and we, uh, and we didn't mention that either. Well, we went through and looked at the, his claims in there, and we're going like, wow, this is uh, just, not, just not tracking in, in our book. But we never mentioned it in, in the book, and it didn't, it didn't affect anything that we wrote other than uh, if I hadn't written my subsequent book, which is out now, Nobody would, other than what that you found would probably even know about it. But um, he, well, he became, as far as we were concerned, just a total non-player in the whole thing. Absolutely. I, 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 I think that Phil Klass and Carl Flock rejected him because they didn't like what he was saying. They didn't, they didn't have evidence that he was lying at that time. They just didn't like it. So they rejected his, his testimonies. Um, once we discovered the truth, uh, I made sure that got published immediately because I just wasn't going to sit with that information in the background. Um, I know that Mark Rodiger and Mark Chesney and Don Schmidt were hesitant to publish the information because they didn't want to embarrass Juanita un unfairly. And, and they should be commended for that, but I thought the information should get out immediately and made sure that it did. Yeah, well, I'm certainly on your side on that. But I can understand their rationale as well. So that kind of deals with Frank Kaufman. Um, we haven't gotten to Project Mogul, which I think is very important that we need to discuss. We haven't talked about MJ-12, which really harms everything that we're discussing. Um, I ha oh, I'm going to talk about some of the things that Cavett had said and done, which I think is important as well. Um, I, because Cavett... Cavett um, Flat ass lied to us, but there's a there's an incident that took place in Sierra Vista, New Mexico, Sierra Vista, Arizona, when Don and I visited him there. That I think is important to understanding his mindset and what was going on. Um, your book covers a lot of this background into how the Air Force was dragged into this investigation and how it came about, and some of the. Um, Back, back room dealings that went on. I think it's important to understand that as well. And it, it may seem like it's overly detailed and might be somewhat boring, but I, to someone like me who's into the minutia of Roswell, I think it's very important to understand some of that that was going on and how this all came about, that it, it sort of detracts from the legitimacy of Roswell. And, and I'll make this one comment uh, with Glenn Dennis, the... Um, Videotapes that we had collected of Glenn Dennis ended up in the National Archives that had been supplied to, I think, probably to um, to to McAndrew. 
and in they're now available on YouTube. And it annoys me because it looks like it's interviews conducted by the government, by the Air Force, with Glenn Dennis, and they're not. And I've tried to get them either taken down as being copyright infringement because of that. I don't care that they're up there. I just do not like the way it's listed up there because it makes it look like they're much more important than they were. And we know that Glenn Dennis was not telling the truth either. Um, Rich, your book is Roswell... Uh, exclusive untailed disclosures about the 1994 Air Force Roswell report. Mine is Roswell in the 21st century, which covers, I think, it from uh, the whole thing from a well, a different perspective. Um, right. Talking about what I've learned about it, treating Roswell as a cold case and doing the investigation some some around beginning around uh, 2010 and looking at all of that material, um, so that we get a, a a better look at it. We're going, we're going to do another hour here with um, Colonel Weaver talking about the, the points we didn't get to, Project Mogul, MJ-12, uh, some of the other investigations that went on in the background that are important to understanding how this whole thing came about and providing insight into um, how things developed and who, who was, who was um, legitimate and who was not and... Uh, one of the things we'll tr I'll try to remember to get into is there was some documentation or writings about the Roswell case prior to the Roswell incident and Jesse Marcel coming out in 1978. There were mentions of the Roswell case. Um, Frank Edwards mentioned it in his book, Flying Saucer, Serious Business. He got most of the stuff wrong other than it happened in Roswell and a rancher found the material. <laughs> Other than that, that um, everything is wrong, but it is a mention of the Roswell case, specifically prior to that stuff coming out. There was a, a, a story written by Inez Wilcox, wife of Sheriff Wilcox of Roswell in 1947, that I, we don't know exactly when it was written. I suspect it was after 1980, but we don't know that for sure. But I think it's important to understand some of the Roswell case as well. So as I say, um, Colonel Weaver and I are going to return here since next week uh, talking about more of this and uh, I'll try to not talk quite so much and let Colonel Weaver talk a little bit more so that you can get his perspective on this. You have been listening to a different perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network. We'll be back in 167 hours. So thank you for tuning in. <laughs>